All right, with that said, let's go to God and his word today. We're in John chapter 10, and we are finishing out uh, what has been for us, well, kind of basically year one of two in the gospel of John. We've been in basically this whole school year, September through now, in the gospel of John. We're going to be taking a break for the summer. We'll pick it back up again in the fall, and, and you're going to see that this really is kind of an intermission section. We've really hit more or less the halfway point of the gospel of John, so I'm excited to dive in. I'm going to invite Ashley. Are you doing our scripture reading today? She's going to read for us. So I invite you to open your Bibles to John 10, and invite you to open your hearts to God, and then we'll pray, and we'll get going here. This is God's word from the gospel of John, chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken— Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Amen. We pray with me? God, we give this time to you. We thank you for your word, which is life to us. We thank you, God, for uh, your presence here with us, that we are not learning about a God who is far off and distant, but we're here to encounter a risen and resurrected Savior. God, I pray that our minds today would be sharpened. Would we be able to think biblically? God, I pray today that our hearts would be stirred with compassion for those who experience life's sufferings and injustices. And God, I pray that our hands would be strengthened for the work that you have for us to do in your name following you, our, our Savior. God, for myself, would you guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And may our focus and attention be on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. One of my goals is, when we gather together like this, not just to teach you about what the Bible says, but to empower you to understand and to read the Bible for yourself. And so I want to make two comments up front Before we even get into this passage, two comments I think that will help us to understand this passage. The first comment I want to make is this. The Bible constantly references other material from the Bible. The Bible is like Wikipedia. It's not like Wikipedia in that every word of the Bible is true and helpful, but it is like Wikipedia in that it's filled with links. Have you guys ever done uh, what I call a Wikipedia safari? Do you know what I'm talking about? You go on Wikipedia to look up something important, you know, like David Lee Roth, and then before you know it, like, you've learned about how beef jerky is made or something, right? Because you just, you click on link, and you click on links, and it just kind of takes you down. That's, that's the, kind of how the Bible is. You read these phrases, 
You read these comments, you read these lines, and the Bible is constantly referencing material from elsewhere in the Bible. For some of you, depending on your translation that you have or your, your publishing edition, actually for some of you, if you have it electronically, you can even see there's little letters and you can click on them or you can look down at the bottom and it'll show you where these references are from. So that's what we're dealing with today. We're, we're dealing with a very substantial hyperlink. Jesus here is going to send us to the Psalms. Which, by the way, we're starting Psalms next week, and so this makes me really happy just as a Bible teacher slash nerd that I get to do half John, half Psalms today. It just, I don't know, it feels right to me. I, only I care, right? Here's the second comment I want to make, though, about the Bible is this. The Bible is a book that is written to address an interrelated set of problems. One of my professors, Brian Chapel, who teaches, taught my preaching class, and I actually I went through it a few different times, uh, but he would say that the Bible, every passage of the Bible, there's some sort of fallen condition focus. So when you're reading the Bible, there's always something, some, something that's wrong, and the, the scripture is given to us to help us address what's wrong. And I think you could kind of boil it down to three basic things. The first one is sin, human rebellion against God. That we have, like sheep, gone astray. Each one we have turned aside to our own ways. Ever since Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, said, no thank you, God, we would like to be in charge. Every human being since then has opted for the same approach to life. Namely, I want to be my own God. Sin. The Bible, though, also talks about suffering. Think about the second book of the Bible, Exodus. The whole book is called Exodus because people were suffering and they were in slavery. And God works this freedom and this redemption for them. Now, suffering can be both personal and it can be impersonal. Impersonal impersonal suffering is natural disaster, sickness, disease, old age. But there is such a thing as personal suffering where one person does a cruel thing to another person. And then the third problem that the Bible addresses is our sorrow. The emotional experience that we feel as a result of our sin, which leads to suffering, which leads to sorrow. Now here's the thing. You can't unbundle the three. You cannot unbundle the three. It's like a, it's like a, you know, it's like Comcast. Like try to unbundle and you're going to die, right? Like you have to talk about all three of these. Some churches only ever want to talk about sin. If I was to stereotype, I would say that's kind of a fundamentalist church approach. Everything is sin. Natural disasters, sin. Cancer, sin. You're sad, sin. Sin, 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 sin. Now we talk about sin at Sound City Bible Church. Some churches don't like to talk about sin. We talk about sin, but you can't ignore the other ones. Suffering. There are some churches that only ever want to talk about suffering. Again, to use kind of a stereotypical sort of term, that would be your classic liberal church. Everything is all about human suffering, human injustice. We need to stand up against the rich. We need to feed the hungry. We need to clothe the the homeless. And everything becomes about addressing human suffering. And then some churches, they only want to talk about your feelings. And I will call this the American therapeutic church. Okay? Oh, you're sad. I'm sorry you feel sad. Jesus died. Feel happy. Let's sing happy songs now, right? Everything is, is meant to... Uh, It feels very superficial. It feels very thin. Here's the thing. All of these three problems are biblical. The Bible addresses all three. You can't unbundle one from the other, but the Bible in different passages addresses things in different ways. 
What got me thinking on this is I was reflecting as we've been in this section, John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. If you guys remember all the way back to John chapter 9, it all started where Jesus sees this man who was born blind. And as he was passing by, the disciples of Jesus, they saw the man and they said, hey, Rabbi, we, we got a question for you. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And what does Jesus say? He says, no, this, this isn't a sin thing. In this moment, the disciples were taking kind of the fundamentalist approach and Jesus goes, oh, hold on, we gotta, we gotta emphasize something a little bit differently here. Now Jesus talks about sin. He's not saying that sin isn't a problem, but he says, in this case, I wanna talk about suffering. And so this whole section that we've been going through really has been about human suffering, particularly personal suffering of injustice. You guys remember what happened? Jesus, he heals the man born blind. That's the impersonal suffering. He heals him. But what happens after that? I love what Pastor Doug said a few weeks ago, that this blind man went from the best day of his life to the worst day of his life. He was excommunicated from the temple, denied access to God himself for no other crime other than being associated with Jesus. He was mistreated badly by those who were in leadership and authority. So Jesus gets up and he says, hey, I am the good shepherd. And by the way, remember, this is no, uh, this is no just, you know, gentle philosophical stuff. This is Jesus with the finger in the chest of these leaders. I'm the good shepherd. All these other ones, they're thieves and they're robbers. And by the way, I'm the good shepherd. I, how good am I? Your salvation is so secure, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And why is that? How can I make a big claim like that? Oh, because I and the Father are one. We pick up in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So again, every time you see, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Every time you see one of those beautiful, you know, good shepherd pictures where Jesus is a shepherd, he's cradling a lamb in his arms, just remember, right off screen somewhere, people with rocks just ready to kill him. Jesus said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Remind me again, which one of these good works is it that's making you want to kill me right now? Why are you trying to stone me? Was it, was it the healing of the blind man, or, or are we going back to chapter 5 when I healed the, the paralyzed man? Which one is it? Just want to know why I'm dying now. They answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. We addressed that a few weeks ago. Jesus never said the words, I am God. But people who heard him knew what he was saying. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go to the website. You can download it. I think it was about two weeks ago we did that. Jesus answered them, hold on a second. Isn't it written in your law? And I quote, I said you are gods, end quote. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You guys track with that? Follow that perfectly? Clear as day? All right, moving on. We're going to come back to this. This is, the big, this is the big thing right here. This is the big hyperlink. I just simply want to point out what Jesus just said. The scripture cannot be broken. <clears throat> Jesus is going to reference the Hebrew scriptures. He's going to defend his deity, his divinity, by pointing to the Psalms that were written maybe a thousand years before he was ever born, walked the earth on, 
in, in his physical form. The scripture cannot be broken. There was a recent um, kind of controversy from a very well-known pastor who went on the record and said that we Christians need to, and I quote, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. His reasoning was uh, that many people in our culture, they don't understand the Old Testament. It's too bloody. It's too sacrificial. It's too much war. It's too archaic, whatever. We need to and the word he used was unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Friends, may that never be said uh, at Sound City Bible Church. All scripture is God-breathed, and if Jesus isn't going to unhitch himself from the Old Testament here, then neither should we. We're going to take a break from John. We're going to go into the Psalms here. We've done the Old Testament book of Judges and the Old Testament book of Ruth. We did the New Testament book of Hebrews, which is just all about explaining the Old Testament and helping people to understand it. Well, we're going to come back to this. Uh, we're going to come back to this here in a moment. Let's finish what he says. Verse thirty-seven. Look, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that may understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What Jesus is saying is, look, look, what am I doing that doesn't remind you of the Father? Do my works line up with the Father's works? Yeah, I think they do. So at least believe that. And then these are my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This happened like so many times in the Gospel of John. I really cannot wait to see Jesus face to face. Like my number one burning question is, how did you get away so many times? Like, look, a Samaritan. Like just run. Like I don't know how it works. I love it. Verse 40. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained and we're all the way back in chapter one now with John the baptizer. We've, we've, we've reached an intermission in the story. Many came to him and they said, John, John the baptizer, he didn't do any signs, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Uh, commentator Gary Burge said that Jesus' removal from Judea has as much to do with theology as with geography. He's leaving the area of conflict and returning across the eastern deserts near the Jordan River where John the Baptist had worked. Jesus has come full circle he has concluded his public ministry among his people, and now it's time for him to remain until his hour does come. It is winter, and in a few months he will appear in Jerusalem at Passover to be glorified as God has planned. So we can push pause on John now for a moment here. But let's go back to 34, because this, this is the big powder keg of dynamite right here that gets Jesus into trouble. Jesus answered them, Is it not written... In your law, and then here it is, I put it in blue so you could click on it. I said, you are God. And in fact, if I could have the guys in the booth click on it, we find that Jesus is quoting Psalm 82. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me, you can go there. But this is what Jesus is referencing. Let's read this. This is what Jesus says. God stands in the divine assembly he pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And I said, 
You are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So, you know, just a mellow little poem from the Old Testament. So I think we can see a couple things clearly here. The, the, the most clear thing that we can see is that the subject matter of this psalm fits right in line with what Jesus has been saying about being the good shepherd. And it's this. There are people in charge who ought to be leading and loving and serving representative of God himself and they are failing to do so and God is not pleased about it. You guys tracking with me so far? Like when Jesus quotes this psalm, when he references this psalm, especially he's talking to the religious leaders. These people, many of them would have had all of the psalms memorized. So when he says this little line about you are all gods, it's not just a quote about his divinity. He's also referencing all of this stuff about injustice. Now there's some interesting wordplay that's going on here in this psalm. Whenever you see the word God in this psalm, there's a, there's a variety of words that can be translated as God or Lord, but the one that's used here is a kind of generic word, Elohim. Elohim can be translated as God, capital G, God. It's plural, Elohim, the I am, it's plural in general, but it also can mean like gods, lowercase g, gods. Sometimes it's translated as angels or heavenly beings. Sometimes it's even just translated as judges or rulers. So here's what's happening in this psalm. It says this, listen, listen to the wordplay. Elohim stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the Elohim. Is that a little confusing? Or skipping down to verse 6, I said, you are Elohim. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, Elohim. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. Okay, so on the surface, it would appear that the psalmist, who is Asaph, not David in this case, is calling people like little gods. That seems wrong. Is that right? Well, think about this. You guys remember in the book of Genesis when God created humankind? It says that he made them male and female. He made them in the, what are the words? Image and likeness of God. He created them. God's character is seen in everything that he's created from a majestic mountain to a beautiful sunset to a a strange animal like a raccoon. God's character is seen in all of those things, but there is nowhere more clearly that God's nature is displayed than in mankind. Male and female, he created them in the image and likeness of God. He created us. And that humanity is meant to represent what God is like to the world. So no, we are not gods in the sense that we are sovereign or, or the sense that we are like eternal like he is. But yes, we are like gods. We are God-like in that we are made in his image and likeness. Which is why it is such a tragedy 
that humanity has failed to live up to our created purpose. Now, Jesus references this psalm to make an argument. David Stern, who is a a, a messianic Jewish author and commentator, he writes this. He says, Yeshua's wordplay, that's Jesus, by the way. Uh, If you remember Rabbi Matt from a few months ago, that's that's Jesus. His wordplay implies a rabbinic style Kal Vachomer argument. Look, if you are really wanting to impress somebody at the Father's Day brunch here after, after this, just drop, oh yeah, it's just a classic Kal Vachomer argument, you know, from the rabbis, right? What it means is, how much more? If this, then how much more? Here, here's what he's saying. If humans who do evil as they judge unjustly are Elohim, how much more is Yeshua who does good works Elohim? And if all of you are sons of the Most High, how much more does the description Son of God apply to Yeshua? If we are supposed to be like God, then it is not wrong for Jesus to show up and say, I am God. If we are supposed to be sons of God, it's not wrong for him to show up and say, I am the Son of God. But don't miss the point. It's not just that Jesus shows up and says, I'm God. It's that Jesus shows up and says, I'm God, and I'm here to deal with injustice. And that, at long last, is my big idea for today, that God has come to deal with injustice through Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And let me just say this. I got increasingly nervous and uncomfortable as the week went on about preaching this sermon because it became very clear, particularly the Psalm 82 reference, that we need to talk about justice and injustice today. But do you know why I started to get nervous? Because it's really politically tense right now in our culture. To say words like justice or injustice, I mean, these are hot-button topics. I hear things like this place, this terrible place I hear about called Facebook, where people go and they argue with each other about right and wrong and justice and injustice. And it's, it's hard to, to even want to stand up here and talk about these things. But I, I want you to understand that this, we have to talk about them because the Bible talks about them. And I refuse to let politics and the jacked up nature of our American politics, the, 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 the cultural war that we seem to find ourselves in, I refuse to let them have it because it's in the Bible. We got to talk about it. It's in the Bible. And so let me just say this. If you're wondering, well, what's he going to say? Is he going to get political here? Listen, I just, I sincerely want you to know that whatever you believe is also what I believe. Okay? So, okay? So if you hear something that chafes you, or you hear something that grates against you, just know it's coming from a friend. Because again, I believe, I mean, literally the exact same things that you believe. I do. I believe it all. Let me say this. I I really, how's that for being political? I'm just going to do like Jesus. I'm going to do this. I'm going to run and disappear, like verse 39. (laughs) Here's, Here's what I would say about this. I am thankful that we have people of of broad political uh, persuasions in our church. We genuinely have a politically diverse church. And the gospel is political, but not in the way that we have carved things up in our American political system. 
The gospel is political in the sense that it has things to say about power and authority and how we live together as human beings. It's political in that sense. I am not talking about the way that we have done it, left, right, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, libertarian, right? Like, I, I'm not, it's not that framework. So let's get a biblical framework, okay? So I want to say, hopefully quickly, six things about what this means, that Jesus shows up, God in the flesh shows up to deal with human injustice. The first one is this, injustice is real. And that might sound a little bit silly for me having to say this, especially in light of what we just read, but um, we live in a society right now where there is a lot of faux outrage, a lot of claims to injustice that are not really injustice, they're, they're entitlement. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, I had a friend, he's a pilot, and he posted up a picture of a complaint that was lodged by somebody, very angry complaint, and the, the pilot the, or the crew member who had to write up the complaint said, one of the customers sitting in a chair in the sky flying 500 miles an hour was upset because their Wi-Fi was too slow. And like, yeah, they, they made a big stink and wanted to talk to management. We see things like that, Right? People can be entitled. People can, you know, start to go, I'm being unjustly treated. It's like, no, you're, calm down. But what happens in our very polarized environment right now is then some people swing over here and say, anytime anyone complains about anything, they're just being a whiner. And we use names or we call names or we use words, you know, like, um, What's the, snowflakes, right? If you ever want to dismiss anybody or put anybody down, I hear people on both the right and the left use that term, oh, they're just being a snowflake. Injustice is real. And injustice is not just something that happens over there. This last week, I spent some time reading through some of the reports uh, because of what's been in the news with North Korea. I read through some of the reports of the human rights violations that happened in North Korea. It's horrific, as a foster parent, I read reports about things that happen in my neighborhood to kids that my kids go to school with. And you know what? It's horrific. Injustice is real, and it's not just some problem out there. People, because of sin, take advantage of other people and seek to harm them. Number two, God cares deeply about injustice. Did you hear what the psalm said? Don't take advantage of the fatherless. Don't take advantage of the poor. Don't make bribes with the wicked. Don't disadvantage the resident alien, the sojourner, the refugee among you. God deeply cares about human injustice. We're going to see this through the Psalms. I, I just personally finished a read-through of all the minor prophets. God cares about the matters of our earthly existence and lives. We, we cannot, here, here's what I want to caution you against. Don't so privatize and individualize the gospel message that you miss out on the earthly ramifications. Yes, Jesus died to save your soul and your body, and our whole world, and all of the cosmos. I think it's Colossians where it says, Christ is uniting all things to himself. That means everything. Our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. God deeply 
cares about injustice. Which led God to send Jesus to experience the ultimate injustice. The cross is a lot of things. And a lot of things can be said about the cross. There's, we make much of the cross here, but one of the things that we can say for sure about the cross is that it was an act of ultimate injustice. A few months ago, I volunteered at my children's school, and there, I was helping out with some kindergartners, and one kindergartner got picked on, and it broke my heart because here's this sweet little innocent kid being picked on. You know that feeling? Anybody ever experienced that feeling? When someone who hasn't done anything wrong experiences suffering at the hands of another? Well, think about Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, the one who only ever acted in love and grace and kindness toward others, being hung like meat on a criminal's cross, mocked and maligned, people hanging their heads in shame, spitting upon him, the cross is the ultimate act of injustice. But the good news is that at the cross, Jesus deals with all three of our major problems. Our sin is dealt with at the cross because his blood was shed that we might have atonement and forgiveness of sins. Praise God, right? But his, 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 cross also deals with our suffering, that Jesus is taking upon himself all of the suffering of the world. And though we still suffer in the cross as a promise that one day we will see a new heavens and a new earth and all suffering will be done away with forever. And you want to know the really cool part? Even our sorrow is dealt with at the cross. The American Therapeutic Church got it at least partly right, that Jesus did die so that you could have joy Because in the presence of God, there is unspeakable joy and Christ died to restore us into right relationship with God. Is this good news to anybody this morning? That all of the injustice of the world is dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we have have hope and we have joy and we have a direction. This is where I go from very good news to count the cost. Because if you're joined with Jesus, it means you're going to be joined to his suffering. And all God's people said, what? Listen. Jesus didn't hide it. He made no bones about it. He said, they hate me, they're going to hate you. They persecute me, they're going to persecute you. They called Jesus insane and has a demon. Do you think they might call us crazy? In the United States of America, we have enjoyed as Christians a position of comfort and privilege for many centuries because of our Christian heritage. But how many of you know the tide has more or less turned? And those who are Orthodox, Bible-believing Christians We don't experience the position of of comfort and prestige that we once did. And what I'm pleading with you, suffer well. Don't go looking for a fight. Don't go cause suffering. And and for crying out loud, don't invent things or make up suffering where there is none. But when Jesus told us, if if, if they hate me, they're going to hate you too, we lose the right to be shocked and outraged when we're mistreated for the name of Jesus. How dare you? You can't do that to me. I've got rights. It's like, you know what? 
I surrendered all my rights the day that I took Jesus' name upon myself. Again, the Apostle Paul, he, he exercised his legal rights. He goes, hey, I'd like to meet with the emperor. Now, he wasn't doing it to try to get himself out of prison. He was doing it because he wanted to go convert the emperor. You just imagine Paul just sitting in prison. This isn't fair. This isn't, shouldn't I have rights? I'm a Roman citizen. He's like, oh, man. There's a story. There's a story in Acts. I think it's Peter and, Peter and John. They just get the, just the stuffing beat out of them for preaching Jesus. You guys remember that story? And they, I mean, just imagine, you know, black eye, bloodied lip, just kind of limping out. And it says, they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. And I think to myself, if someone was mean to me because I, I told them I was a Christian, it's like, man, I got, I got a long ways to go. Anybody else? Let's suffer well. Let's not go look for suffering, okay? But just understand, that might be our reality going forward. It also means if we're joined to Jesus, we're joined to his suffering. It also means we're joined to his mission. Okay. Your hands, right? You have an area of service that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You're called to join him in his mission. Again, Jesus did not save us so that we could only have a, quote, personal relationship with him. He did save us to have a personal relationship with him, but that personal relationship is meant to go public. One of the things that's happened in the West, Europe, the Americas, the Enlightenment tradition, is we've privatized faith. You have your faith, you keep it over there. You have your faith, you keep it over there. We'll all exist. Your faith is this nice, private, personal, individual thing. Well, what we're seeing now is that is ridiculous. Not just for the Christian faith, but for really any faith. That faith, just by its very nature, has some sort of a public expression, some sort of an external expression. But how much so the faith of people who follow a guy who said, go into all the world and make disciples baptize them. That's, have you ever thought about how crazy baptism is? Like if you join like the rotary, they give you a pen. If you join Team Jesus, we drown you. Like think about that. Like we're just gonna put you into the water and then we're gonna pull you up and like you died with Christ and you rose again with him. Like, oh, I'm drenched. This is crazy, right? Like what a weird thing it is. Like that's a very public expression. What pen? I can just kind of put that in right here, right? Like it's like, no, I've been baptized with Christ. I've got a commission to go. You have been called to go on mission with Jesus. The mission is not just for the pastors or the deacons or the church staff. It is for everyone who is joined to Jesus. Amen? And lastly, I'll say this. We're dealing with earthly injustices, but we don't address them with earthly methods. The Apostle Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, so when you're really mad at whatever leader, whatever person, whatever uh, figure who has caused harm to another person, just remember that our ultimate battle is against Satan and the forces of evil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not fight fire with fire. We fight the injustice of the world with our love. I don't know about you. I can get really tempted to just fight fire with fire. 
oh, everyone's yelling and they're all being loud. <laughs> I can yell. I can be loud, right? You're like, surprise, Aaron. We didn't know that about you. Like, I can, I can do it. I can get feisty. I can get passionate. I can fight. I don't, I don't like to back down naturally from a fight. But that's not how we're going to do the mission that God's put before us. That's not how we're going to, to conquer the forces of evil. You know, the, the, the first Christians... The Roman, emperor got, the Roman Empire got so mad at the early Christians. You know why? Because they just kept adopting people. They were, they were literally, you know, they'd try to throw out babies. They'd try to get rid of babies, and the Christians would just adopt them all. And they, would, they were known for, you know, feeding people and taking, like, it was, it's, it, was it got under the, em, the empire's skin. Because the empire was all about power and control, and, and the Christians said, we're all about love and serving and Here's how Christ has loved us, and so here's how we're going to love the world around us. And so we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't fight earthly injustice with earthly methods. We have divine methods. And sometimes it's hard. Can I just, just admit, like, sometimes it's just hard to say, like, oh, yeah, I wanna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to outlove you. <laughs> it's like, no, I, I, would like, I would like to, Jesus, can I have permission to punch just this one person, please? Like, no, I'm going lo- I'm gonna, I'm gonna to love you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outlove you. Now, listen. So maybe you're with me so far, and you say, okay, Jesus came to stand up against injustice. I'm called, because of the cross, to join him in his mission to stand up against injustice. Now, some of you, when you hear that, you think, all right, what do I do? And maybe your first thought is, I know, I will post something on social media. (laughs) Okay, listen, I love you, and I post things on social media, I do. But what I want to offer to you here is this, this what I'm going to give you here is I'm going to give you a, a, a closing list of ways that you can actively take a stand against injustice in the world that are a better use of your time than posting on Facebook or at least will give you credibility when you do post on Facebook that you're actually doing something and not just posting on Facebook. Social media is a dangerous drug, man makes you feel like you got something real. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. I'm going to leave that alone. I'm going to give you 10 quick things that you can do that would be ways that you can fight against injustice. This is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. These are just the 10 that came to me this week. Number one, become a foster parent. Foster kids experience a lot of injustices in life. You could love and you could serve and you could care for one, all these problems out there, big problems out there. Yeah, what about one kid right here in your neighborhood who needs someone to love? I got, a, I got an email this week, and I'm, I'm saying this to brag on, on you, the church community. I got an email two weeks ago from uh, one of the directors of our Linwood CPS office, and actually one of the administrators was, was added into it as well. And they just basically said, I cannot believe how good of a partner Sound City Bible Church has been in the whole foster care world. You guys are really walking the walk, not just talking the talk. Thank you. And so I forwarded out to all the foster parents because they needed some encouragement. Thank God for that. Number two, support a foster family. Not everyone can or should be a foster parent, but you can support one. Take a meal or provide babysitting or prayer. Just love them and get to understand them, get to know them. Provide support. Number three, you can adopt a single mom. Not only the single moms themselves, but the children themselves find themselves in a very vulnerable position often. So when I say adopt, I mean just show up with a bag of groceries. Make it your business to know the kids' birthdays and provide some gifts. Pray for them regularly. Invite them over to your house. 
For you who are married, don't just only hang out with other married couples. Adopt a single mom because that's a vulnerable position to be. And I can say that on authority because my wife was out of town for, for five days last week. And I, I, I thought, well, it was just not good. So um, I'm kidding. My kids are delightful and I'm, I'm a pretty adequate parent. So, but that's a, man, I could feel it. I felt that weight of being a single parent. Number four, volunteer at the Pregnancy Resource Center. We've been doing this bottle drive. It wraps up today. Thank you for your generosity in bringing these bottles back. Go volunteer. Go take them a bag of clothes. The Pregnancy Resource Center serves women who find themselves unexpectedly pregnant and they think that their only possible option is to get an abortion. And rather than just saying, hey, abortion is a moral wrong, say, hey, I'm here. I'll love you. I'll walk with you. I'll care for you. Let's walk this out together. So go volunteer up at the PRC. Number five, donate money to REST. REST is a Seattle organization here that we've had some relationship with. I'm, I'm, I'm friends with the director. And I got an email recently. Um, there were some laws that were passed that shut down some of the really yucky uh, back page sort of websites where a lot of the prostitution stuff was happening. So praise God that that was shut down. But it actually has created a new problem because now they're saying that they're just seeing street walking out in public much more than they have in years. And they said that their request for beds, their request for support, their request for services has almost doubled since those laws were passed. So it's good, but it's, it's bad. It's, it's kind of forced things that were in dark, hidden quarters of the internet just kind of out into the light. This next one is um, this next one is important, and I need you to hear me on this, and, and, and I'm going to deal with this sensitively, but number six, do not look at pornography. Now, I know that's like, well, that's a just good advice anytime. <laughs> but you do not understand how much exploitation is taking place on those websites. And the statistics bear it out, and the studies show it out, and law enforcement concurs that it is not, by and large, a lot of willing participants, but there are a lot of women who are enslaved, coerced, and forced into exploitative behaviors. And I'll even take it one step further. It's not just the, quote, pornography websites, but some of the mainstream movies, things they show in the movie theater, the whole Me Too movement. I can't remember which actress I read, but basically I read an article where she was saying she was basically forced into doing some big, long, extended pornographic scene because of exploitative, coercive, wicked men. If you need help, we want to help you. We want to be a safe place, a place for you to come and say, I'm enslaved. And by the way, this is not just a men's issue. Pornography has become so ubiquitous. It's become so mainstream. You literally can't watch music videos anymore. This is about injustice. There's a lot of reasons to not participate in pornography, but as it relates to today, think about the injustice angle. Number seven, serve your neighborhood school. I had a conversation with one of my children's principals about a month ago. And he said to me, this school has become the de facto social services center for our neighborhood. They know who the homeless kids are. They know who's sleeping in their car. They know who went to bed without a meal last night. They know whose parents are going through it. They know, they know, because they're right there in your neighborhood. You ever see taxi cabs pulling up and dropping off kids? At your school, 
You might not have realized it, but it's probably because they're in foster care and that's how they're getting transportation to their school. And so while we can be frustrated about the injustices or things that are happening over there, like you and I don't really have very much opportunity to fix the relationship between, I don't know, you know, the U.S. and North Korea or the U.S. and Canada or whatever's going on this week, right? But you do have the opportunity to get involved in your neighborhood school. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I volunteer? Can I come in and play basketball with some of the boys? Number eight, develop a relationship with local civic leaders. We have an event coming up. Um, It's not like a public widespread event, but we have an event coming up. One of our groups is wanting to serve uh, an apartment complex nearby uh, where our offices are with a barbecue and just to do an event like, hey, we're here for you. We love you. We care for you. And we were able to pick up the phone. We were able to get the fire department and the police to come over and hang out and kind of turn it into like a neighborhood block party sort of event because people in our leadership team have invested relationship with like the chief of the Linwood police and other civic leaders. Again, I cannot call Vladimir Putin and ask him, like, what gives, man? Like, I can't do that. But you could get to know your councilman, your councilwomen. You can get to know police and fire. You can get to know people who are civic leaders right there in your neighborhood. Tell them that you're praying for them. Tell them that you love them. And this Linwood High School here this week, and they've been grieving. They had graduation on Friday night. They've been grieving because they lost two students over last weekend. While we were in your worship in last Sunday, a student took his life. And I'm not trying to brag on myself or us, but we, we showed up on Tuesday morning with some flowers and with a card and some cookies, and the card just says, we prayed for you this morning, we're here for you. Invest in relationships with people that you can actually make a difference. Number nine, do an international mission trip. And in particular, that will help you get a perspective on suffering and injustice. I think it might help you guard against the entitlement that can come from living in a very wealthy area. And then lastly, number 10, this one's a personal favorite of mine, just keep coming to church. How does that stand against injustice? I'll tell you how. Because you keep having your heart and your mind shaped by the word of God. And you live in a noisy world between billboards and magazine covers and the radio and TV and the internet. You live in a constant state of there's a crisis, there's a crisis, there's a crisis. Here's what's wrong, here's what's wrong. That's what the news actually has literally become. Here's what's wrong nearest you. Like, that's the news. You come to church and you hear about the sovereign grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and for the alleviation of our suffering and our sorrow. And you walk out and you think, thank God there's a savior. It's not all about the news. It's not all about what the culture's wanting to talk about. I need to hear the word of God. So come to church. Hebrews says, don't neglect gathering together as is the habit of some. That means there have been for 2,000 years people who, ah, I don't really need to go to church. Come to church. Go to your small group. Meet with that friend. Read the Bible. I want to close with this prayer here. This is from a woman named Erica Van Essendelft from the Christian Reformed church. It's a good Dutch name right there. I'm going to read this prayer. I'm going to read it slowly. I want to invite you to pray it. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you, if you would, just to agree with it. I'll invite our musicians to come as I pray, and we're going to begin to prepare our hearts to respond to Jesus through singing and through the Lord's table. Lord, you give us the unwavering call 
to do justice. You tell us to defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow, to love the foreigner residing among us, to provide for the hungry, thirsty, and naked, to love our enemy. But Lord, it is overwhelming. Do you not know that we are only human? May your spirit fill us with hope. Remind us that we are enough in you so that in all things we will follow your will and take up the call to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Amen.